Hello, podcast friends. As you know, I believe that empowering women, getting gender right on the planet is the most impactful peace building initiative we can undertake. Thus, uh, one of my main initiatives these days focuses on building women's skill in negotiation. I'm super excited to say that I just completed my first online offering of what I call the mini workshop series on women in negotiation and power. I had 14 participants, a great group from around the world uh, that gathered weekly on Zoom, thank God for Zoom, for about a month. Uh, As always, I appreciated the diversity in the group. From national origin or current residents, uh, folks were from the UK, South Sudan, Russia, Australia, Colombia, Morocco, Yangon, the United States, East and West Coast, and notably to me, a lot of generational diversity. For women, especially as we step into our leadership across the world, it feels to me critical that we are talking to each other across nation, tribe, and across age. We have a lot to learn from each other. Most excitedly for me, I think participants got the connection between how we negotiate in our individual lives, in our families, at our workplaces, and what is happening on the world stage. I can feel the power of a cohort of women who understand collaboration in the face of conflict and how to use it for our own benefit and in our leadership in the world around us. If you or anyone is interested in staying tuned to this initiative, please put your name on my Women Negotiation and Power blog list at susancoleman.global. In this current episode on negotiation, gender, and culture, I talk to my colleague and return guest, Dean Foster of deanfosterglobal.com. Dean has extremely stellar credentials in the field of cross-cultural communication, has worked with most major Fortune 500 companies, pretty much every cultural group on earth, national governments, the UN, etc. He is an author, speaker, and I like this, cultural concierge. Dean and I go way back and cut our teeth together with uh, Ellen Rader and Ellen Rader International, who was one of the first to teach intercultural negotiation around the world. Dean went on to, quote unquote, major in cross-cultural communication with a, quote unquote, minor in negotiation. And I went on to major in negotiation and collaborative processes with a minor in intercultural communication. Negotiation is a very culture-bound concept. Uh, Indeed, you can't really think about it without considering culture. And certainly for women in many cultures, the cultural norms clamp our mouths shut. We just can't negotiate, period. Like I had a client, a young woman from China that I was with in Seoul, and she was saying, I love this material. We were doing a collaborative negotiation skills course, but I can't negotiate at home. I just do what I'm told. And actually, all the money I earn from my job, it goes to my brother. What do I mean by culture? It's often commonly thought of as artifacts, music, etc. Um, I'll call that high culture. But what we're talking about here is what goes on below the iceberg, if you will. What's happening in the deep root system of the tree, what I'll call uh, worldview. Geert Hofstede, who is, uh, was a, a Dutch researcher in the area and who I've used his thinking a lot over the years, He defined culture as uh, the collective programming of the mind that distinguishes one group from another. So it's, it's like group personality, if you will. Culture is to a group what personality is to an individual. And culture is just the way that different humans on the planet 
have come up with the challenges and opportunities of living on our particular section of the globe. In um, this episode, I wanted to explore with Dean a question that I started thinking about as I was writing my book on women in negotiation, which hopefully will be coming soon. Uh, He and I have shared uh, with audiences for years the variables that research highlights as differentiating national cultural groups, like individualism, uncertainty, attitudes towards time, attitudes towards authority, often known as power distance, task uh, versus quality of life orientation, things like that. But how do these variables differ within one cultural group by gender? If one country where the dominant cultural norm shows up as highly individualistic, does that mean that if the men and women were looked at as subgroups, they would be equally highly individualistic? So that's what we're going to talk about here. How does gender impact cultural differences? And we're going to do this just based on our own empirical evidence, our experience over the years of working in this area. One other thing, this episode was recorded right at the beginning of the outbreak of the coronavirus in the U.S., uh, but before the killing of George Floyd and the ensuing protests about racial justice and police brutality, which then has rippled around the world. From working all over the globe, one of the things that I've learned about us humans is that we are much more alike than we are different. That's true of nations, tribes, genders, all of it. We have the same categories of needs, physical security, belonging, etc. The same categories of feelings, mad, sad, glad, etc. But how these manifest is impacted by culture. It may seem simple to say, but simple stuff is often most worth saying and ever more important to emphasize in our shrinking and contentious world, that when you create a climate that is collaborative across difference, that allows people to meet their basic needs. You don't need coercive and violent police, and you don't need a hyper-militarized planet either. When you build a collaborative climate in a family, a team, a group, or a world, You do not get what I call groupocentrism. This is my elegant word for identity group polarization. You do not need to dominate one cultural group with another. You don't need to put trillions into weapons, especially when that money is so sorely needed to heal our declining planet. But understanding cultural differences is super important and super rich, makes life much more interesting. And if you are someone who has followed the cross-cultural literature, I know you will enjoy this conversation thinking about culture and gender. We believe we have raised more questions than answered, but perhaps someone listening will get inspired and do some real and welcome research in the area. Uh, If you have any thoughts on our conversation, we'd love you to share them in the comments section of the podcast blog at susancoleman.global. So uh, without further ado, I bring you Dean Foster and myself in conversation. So, uh, Dean, I'm so glad to have you back on the Peace Building Podcast. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks. And such a weird time. Of course, we're right in the middle of this pandemic, this global pandemic, uh, which is so bizarre and horrific and but has given many of us some time to do things uh, like it was easy to schedule with you like it was easy to schedule with me everybody is like anyone that was traveling around ain't traveling around at the moment so we're not on planes now nope 
Nope. And maybe the skies are thanking us because everything is, you know, getting a little clearer and all that. So I, I was thinking about you and thinking about our just our history. I mean, we started both through Ellen Rader. We were both working. You were working with Ellen Rader, um, our dear colleague. And then I met you that way. And we were teaching intercultural negotiation. And we did you and I did a lot of programs for AT&T. What's AT&T's, inter, what were they called? International Services, or do you remember what it was? It was AT&T's. At the time, I think I recall it as AT&T International Services, but who yeah. knows what they were referring to themselves as now. But um, they too were just starting out in this whole idea of we need to develop some skills around culture. We need to understand what's happening out there now that we're working in a global world. And, and they really were one of the first that I can recall that even had this perspective on what was happening. But we're going back, what, 30 years or so. So I hate to say it, probably <laughs> something about that. But yeah. Um, and certainly Ellen was one of the first people to really uh, talk about culture in, in, as part of the negotiation process. I remember when I was at Harvard and I talked to some folks at MIT and I folks, uh, some people at Harvard and I said, I'm going to do intercultural negotiation. And they said to me at the time, no such thing. Right. <laughs> and and now, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, they're my colleagues and I appreciate what they do and everything. But I notice how many times they will put out things on culture and negotiation, you know. So. Right. Right. I, I think, you know, what was happening at the time was that they were trying to establish some criteria and some language around uh, how we talk about negotiations and trying to create a more objective way of looking at it more as a science which needed to be done. Um, but I think at, at the time, you know, it, it required that they have to put culture to the side. We can't incorporate that just yet. And and maybe at the time they didn't see the need for it because they had to establish the, the scientific way of looking at the process of negotiating. But I think ultimately, you know, you do have to bring culture into the process because um, once you've created those objective facts about the negotiation process, then you also have to take the objective facts about culture and put that into the mix. And then and then gender, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So anyway, just a little bit about more about you and me. So we did a number of programs. We did a number of things together. And then you uh, kind of veered off and really focused on culture. And I veered off and Culture and negotiation, but uh, culture big, negotiation smaller. I right. focused on negotiation big, culture smaller. I did a number of culture. Then you worked with Berlitz, and I don't remember how that went down, but I did a couple, a number of programs for you where I was doing uh, cultural. Uh, what, what did you call them? Uh, cultural briefings for people who were traveling around the world. I did a number of those for you. That's right. That's right. Um, Berlitz, you know, was a language company and their clients were taking language because they were doing business in other countries. And so we realized that there was an opportunity there. They also needed information about culture. And so we aligned with them and in fact developed their cross-cultural training business worldwide for them. And then that's how we were working through Berlitz for many, many years. And then we went on in to do this kind of work independently. We're helping organizations when they relocate 
families from one country to another. Wherever cultural information and skills needed to be applied, that's where we stepped in and helped. And I continued, I've, I never talk about negotiation without incorporating culture because negotiation is a culture-bound concept, as we'll talk more about. So I, I continue to do uh, programs for NASA and their space partners and programs for the UN worldwide. And of course, working with a lot of very, very diverse populations. But um, as you know, uh, I am writing a book on women in negotiation. And in the course of doing it, I was writing the, the chapter on culture, and I thought I started, uh, you know, thinking about a lot of things I think about in terms of culture and negotiation. And it occurred to me, while I've thought about it maybe vaguely, I don't think I had ever specifically asked myself the question, if you look at the cultural variables like the Hofstede variables, the Trump and our variables, or whatever, or your variables, if you took any uh, uh, one culture, national culture I'm talking about, and you looked at a variable, how would it differ by gender, by, by males and females in that culture? So I called you and I said, hey, Dean, <laughs> let's, would you be willing to have a conversation about this? Because I think this is kind of interesting. And you, of course, were game and I appreciate it. Um, so, um, but it sort of amazed me in a way that it was the first time that I specifically had asked myself this this question. Um, you know, how does gender really play out in the cultural dimension? I mean, of course, gender itself is a culture of a kind. And, and I'm gonna. I thought, well, let me just say first. Uh, it gets me into saying this general thing about culture and negotiation and how they interface in my mind and uh, see if you agree. Uh, if a culture, uh, you know, if if the negotiation, and this gets to the negotiation strategy, if the negotiation is more collaborative than competitive, my experience is that uh, identity group differences, of which culture is a part, are not likely to polarize. Uh, they may become interesting, uh, a source of misunderstanding, certainly, but not, you know, you're not going to get into identity group polarization anywhere near the same way you will if you have a competitive adversarial negotiation process. And then what will happen is the phenomenon that I call very elegantly groupocentrism. That's my, <laughs> my phrase. <laughs> my phrase. Um you will see, depending on what the context is, if it's if it's a, a I don't know, it, it, the 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 group will break down by identity group differences. It could be gender, it could be national culture, it could be race, it could be whatever's relevant to that particular context. Um, right. I, you know, I think what you're talking about here is the default position that people take, and the default position that they take is often defined by their identity group. So if people are needing to feel like they have to go to a safe place, um, if it's not, if the negotiation isn't going the way that they're perceiving it to go, they're going to default to their safe place, which is their group identity, or maybe the way their, their gender role has defined them, or their race, or their generation, or whatever that default is. And you know, I think this is where people sometimes get a little bit confused around 
culture, it's that none of this stuff is prescriptive. None of it has to happen. You know, we do have free will. And and I think You mean that, just because you're from culture A, you're not going to necessarily behave like is that what you're saying? Like culture I think A. I, I think you will default to culture A when the pressure to default gets serious. In other words, when you feel threatened, when you feel uh, like you're not getting your needs met, but you don't have to. Mm-hmm. You can make a choice. Mm-hmm. You can make a choice to think more intelligently about the situation, about use other tools, about um, you can make a choice that what's happening is your reaction um, and you're defaulting to a place that's comfortable for you, but it doesn't have to be, it may not be the most productive place to go. So the good news, I think, is that we all have choices here. The way Yeah, we really can, good point. Really good point. Know, the, the, the way we make those choices, though, is through enlightenment. The only way we're going to know that we don't have to default to a comfort zone. In fact, it may be safer and more productive and more positive to understand where the other person is coming from and actually meet them halfway there, if not fully. Because you may get more of your needs met doing that than by defaulting to what you think you is going to get you what you want. So we always have choices. And I think that's the good news about culture. And that's the good news about about any of the the group identities that we're a part of. But it, it presupposes, I think what you're saying is such a good point, but it does presuppose self-awareness. Like, you know, our saying, the fish is the last one to know it's swimming in water. You you have right. to know what your cultural fallback or your identity group fallback is. You have to even be aware of that in yourself if you're actually going to transcend it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the first step. You know, in in my first book, um, Bargaining Across Borders, where we're talking about culture and we're talking about negotiations, I, you know, I say, look, the first thing you have to do is recognize that there are these cultural differences at the, at the table with you. And then, like, retrace, you know, rediscover in yourself what it might be about this other culture that is creating this behavior that's challenging you in some way. And I think at the deepest level, not only do you retrace, but you find in yourself those experiences that maybe give you some insight into why that person is behaving the way that they're behaving. Because I don't think any of these behaviors that challenge us are that foreign to us. They're yeah, just- I would say we are all, I mean, from working with people all over the world, and I bet you agree with me, I, I think we are way more alike than we are different. Absolutely. And and these things called culture, which I call group personality in a way. Right. Um, That's good. Uh, they're like weighted differently based on on where you come from in the world. They're just they're not. It's not like it's a totally tra- strange concept. It's just weighted differently. Like for me, I come from the United States. I come from an Anglo-Saxon culture. I got uh, heavily acculturated to individualism. Whereas uh, other people in um, like in parts of Asia were much more acculturated to a collectivist uh, or group oriented way of life. And but it's not that I don't understand that. I do. And it's not like they don't understand individualism. They do. It's just weighted differently. It's weighted differently. And I think as U.S. Americans, which is the case for both you and me, 
we actually have a unique advantage in this, in that, you know, we don't have to go very far back in our own personal experiences or even further back than maybe yesterday when we went, well, we didn't do that yesterday because we can't <laughs> because do of the pandemic. Anymore, right? Go anywhere. But the point is, as U.S. Americans, we're always interacting with people from somewhere else. Every U.S. American is, you know, either in their own generation or one generation away from being from somewhere else. So we know these experiences and all of these experiences are human and they're part of us. We just have been trained to think that there are these positions that we can default to that define us much more clearly than any of these subtle nuances. Um, but those subtle nuances are still part of us. And so when you see someone behaving in ways that are challenging you, you've got to find, go back into yourself and say, what is it that may be driving that person that I can recognize? And then you, then you, then you create this empathy moment with them. And you kind of reframe what's going on so that you're not, well, first of all, you're not defaulting to a defense position and, and you're open to listening to where this person's coming from. And I think at that moment, you can then start the discovery of underlying needs and how to solve those needs. Yeah, I just want to come back to that idea of climate because, uh, you know, and using like, well, I have to get a little political here to look at some of what happened with the Trump administration I think he has succeeded in creating a much more adversarial climate in the country, which you saw then like a, a increase in anti-Semitism and anti, I mean, an increase in um, racial and gender kinds of violent types of situations. And yeah, I, I, so I just want to come back to my point that, you know, the climate, the negotiation strategy that you're using, whether it's if it's win lose, you're going to see cultural differences heighten and polarize. If it's win-win, it's not as likely. Absolutely. So Dean, I want to I want to jump into the gender part of this because time flies by so fast on these things. Um and I wanted to make it one um a, a couple of general comments. One is that from you know, that most societies on earth are still patriarchal. And that means a rule of the father you know, in family systems, and then that plays out in organizational systems. And most societies on earth, women are still less valued than men. Uh, certainly there are exceptions to that. And less empowered. Um, and less empowered. So, so far, it sounds like you're in a, you agree with what I'm saying, that that seems true to you from what you know of the world and what's- a Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think we're still in this, look, we're only, what, 50,000 years away from our biological origins, right? That's not a, is that what not it a is? lot of, I think so, <laughs> something like that. And and we've only been in this adventure of creating civilizations for 6,000 years, yeah. which is not a lot. Right. And, you know, I think the anthropologists and, and the paleoanthropologists have, have defined for us pretty clearly how fundamentally we have spent thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of years in this mode of um, basically hunters and nurturers. 
And the roles were pretty well defined, that it was the men who went out and hunted and it was the women who nurtured and, and stayed in the, in the cave, so to speak. And, you know, it's not, I, I think with only 6,000 years of civilization and maybe only 1% of that time in any enlightened way, um, it's hard to counterbalance against the, the legacy of patriarchy that came out of the hunter and the cave and the nurturer in the pre-civilized human experience. But today, that's all history. And we have opportunities today and we have choices today and we have enlightenment and we have ways of thinking about our relationships with each other and how we want to structure civilization and society. But this is a very, very new adventure that we're on, you know, from a human But one of the things I just want to throw in here is that um, uh, both Rianne Eisler and Bill Urey uh, have, well, Rianne Eisler, who wrote The Chalice and the Blade, has been a guest on the show actually twice. Uh, and Bill Urey, I'm still get, trying to get him on the show. One of these days I'm going to succeed. <laughs> but uh, they both, and, and other people too, actually, Rabia Roberts, who has uh, also been on the show, you know, our our societies, our human history has been more collaborative than competitive. We have a much longer period of time in terms of our livelihood, pre-agriculture, of being much more cooperative and where gender relations were really balanced. And so patriarchy, you're right, is much more of a 5,000, 6,000, I don't know, I hear different numbers of how many thousands of years old the institution is. But certainly men and women lived in partnership for much longer periods than they have lived uh, in the way that we have under under the way we have under patriarchy. So, uh, well, we can't go backwards. It's interesting to know that and to know that the that you know the age of the goddess was during those periods of time and and uh, the first. Um, anyway, I don't want to get into into territory that I'm not very good at talking about. Other people are much better at talking about it, but. But I did want to say about negotiation and patriarchy that the very concept of negotiation is, as I said, I think I said it earlier, is culture bound. And certainly I'm aware that in many cultures, women just can't negotiate, period. Like I had a client, a young woman from China that I was I was sitting with in Seoul and she was saying, I, I was doing a negotiation course, she said, I love this material, but... I can't negotiate at home. I just do what I'm told. And actually, right. all of the money I earn from my job, it goes to my brother. Well, I think we may be living at a more patriarchal moment than, than we have had in most of our civilization. Um, huh. Because I, I, I think there's a relationship between advanced capitalism and patriarchy. Um, and we can explore that and it'd be great to get some economist perspectives on that too. Um, you know, I think way back in our origins, the roles of men and women were much more ecologically balanced. And, and it was an ecology of roles um, so that it was much more mm -hmm. egalitarian. Um, if it hadn't been, it wouldn't have worked. But it worked for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. I think only when civilization started to develop did we then have to organize in some way and uh, ascribe authority. And I think economics also had a great impact on who got what kind of authority mm -hmm. in the creation of those civilizations. Mm -hmm. So I think it was civilizations that had, that advanced patriarchy um, and put the ecology of the genders out of balance. 
Your comment is uh, about that maybe advanced capitalism supports advanced patriarchy, a, a more patriarchal moment. I just read a really interesting article in the Atlantic. This guy, they, this reporter, had interviewed a um, hundred boys, young men. They were eighteen, twenty, around there, eighteen years old. They yeah. were um, college-bound young, young guys. And the point of his article was how much um, that the definition of masculinity to him seems to be uh, contracting. That when asked, and of course these were U.S. kids, uh, that when asked uh, what traits society values most in boys, only uh, only two percent of the male um, survey respondents said honesty and morality. Um, that there was a lot of pressure on them to be bros, to be aggressive, mm -hmm. to be actually disrespectful, even though I think they, um, I don't know, to be disrespectful to women in, in many regards. And uh, the article also seemed to talk about how women and feminism have given women a bit more freedom to be a lot of different things. And men, and then I will get into, because you know this is the Peace Building Podcast, and I am paying it a lot of attention as I think you know, I've made a point that getting gender right on the planet is the, the greatest peace building initiative that we could undertake. And I think there is a strong correlation between um, toxic masculinity and war and the use of uh, military solutions um, and the overuse of military solutions. I mean, like right now in the middle of this pandemic, it's just so ridiculous because you see how much in the US we have completely gutted our government and put so much money into militarization mm -hmm. that we have no money for a public health system. Right. We have no money to, to combat climate change. Uh, we've been spending it all on these really, really fancy uh, bombers and, uh, and uh, video games. And I mean, just like, it's, it's well, like, uh, you know, the virus has really called it all out, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. they, you've got, uh, you know, trillions and trillions going to, um, the Pentagon, and we can't even get masks and band-aids. <laughs> I know. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, okay. So um, you sent me in, in preparation for this, and I hope I'm not going too fast, but I'm just always so aware of the uh, the time and yeah, yeah. Um, part of me. But um, you sent me uh, your, your list of what you think of as the main national or international cultural variables, the ways that cultures seem to differ. Right. And I thought it might be interesting just for you to read that list, if you would, and then we and then you and I can pick out of that list some things that look interesting to us to talk about in terms of how they differ based on culture. Yeah. You know, and, and great point. Let's take a look at this list. What I tried to do was outline um, in summary what a lot of research has done over the years in terms of trying to identify these broad, what we call cultural dimensions around which all people everywhere around the world will, will demonstrate some difference and measurable difference so that you can say at the end of the day, oh, this culture is very individualist while this culture is more collectivist. And you can define what that means in a very clear way and it doesn't mean that every individual in, in any of these cultures are always going to behave a certain way. No, not at all. It's a, it's a spectrum. 
but that if you line up the cultures, if you get the average or the mean for all these different cultures and you line them up, you can see that some are more one way than another. And the reason for that is a combination of lots of things like history and religion and topography and climate, but that there are these very measurable, scientifically determinable differences in, based on social research on how people react to life and it defines their culture. So one of them that jumps right out is this idea of individualism and collectivism. The idea that in, just to use the extremes to, to make the definitions clear, that there's the individualist cultures are those where people are rewarded and they're valued for making individual decisions, for coming up with individual ideas, for doing things on their own. And then you've got these collectivist cultures where it's just the opposite. In fact, individuals cannot take the initiative. The first thing they have to think about all the time, what's front of mind for them, is how is it that whatever I'm thinking or doing is going to play out in regards to others? And therefore, my whole behavior is going to be different. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be self-initiating until I'm absolutely sure that others are going to agree with me before I even take a baby step. So th the implications of these differences are vast because it affects how we negotiate, how we do business, how we relate with each other and male and female. The list goes on and on. But the reason for these differences in all these different areas can be tied to this very fundamental difference in cultural orientation. And that's just one of them. Right. Individualism yeah, so, so and collectivism. Give me, give me some more. Are you, are you game to give me some more? Yeah. Sure. Um, I think the degree of maybe yeah, you know, different researchers have identified different ones. Some right. say there are eight of them. Some say there are four of them. Right. I, I think there are 12 of them. You know, and actually, Dean, if I could just back out for a second and say that in terms of doing conflict resolution or conflict in culture, I ended up with sort of a really short form of saying if you if you look around the world loosely there are cultures that are more aggressive there are cultures that are more avoidant right. and there are cultures that are more just assertive in the middle and that that's one that's one very loose big model right <laughs> but you're getting you're getting more refined so <laughs> um you know i think another area that really stands out for me uh when i work with different cultures is this area of Comfort with uncertainty and comfort yeah. with, with risk. Uh, risk is probably a tricky word, but certainly uncertainty. So there are a lot of cultures that put a lot of effort into making sure that before they do anything, they have all the information. They make sure that everybody who's affected is going to line up behind them. They have to research the entire encyclopedia before they take a baby step. And the other side of that are these risk-comfortable cultures where we make big steps with just enough information and we don't do a lot of planning because we feel like we can do whatever needs to be done in the moment that it needs to be done. And this causes, when these two cultures come together, it causes it can cause friction, misunderstanding. You get people behaving where all they're doing is looking for lots of detail and data and, and logic and information before they do anything. And then you have these other cultures where individuals are standing up making all these decisions and trying to implement them immediately mm -hmm. uh, with just enough information, sometimes just on a hunch. So you get, you get different 
business styles, you get different negotiation styles, you get the difference in, again, how men and women are going to relate with each other. So those are just two cultural examples out of, you know, 10 or 12. And, and I want to, before I look at another one, I just want to make this other comment that okay. takes me back to my earlier point is that no matter what culture you come from, that's going to be your default, right? So I come from a very individualist culture in the U.S. Um, I'm probably going to default to that at some point because that's a big part of me. But I don't have to default to that. Mm-hmm. That's my point. We always have choices because these other ways of behaving are part of our human experience. There's a collectivist part of me somewhere. You know, I it, it doesn't get called out very much, however. And I got to know that when I'm negotiating with collectivists, I need to get in touch with that part of me so that I can connect with them and understand better and not misunderstand them in terms of where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Another big variable that comes to mind is um, how we approach time and how we organize ourselves around this human concept of time, right? Because right. Uh, it's, it's totally artificial. It's a cultural concept. Um, do we believe that time defines ourselves and everything we do? Are we beholden to this artificial concept so that we have to do things according to calendars and agendas and deadlines? Or is time something that we recognize, but it doesn't define what we do in the moment? Rather, it's. In the- I always liked it. Sorry to interrupt you, but I always yeah. liked it when people talked about farming and how that impacted people's concepts of time. Like in monochronic cultures, they're toward more time sensitive. You have to plan for winter, so like you have to pay attention to time. Whereas <laughs> right. in more polychronic cultures. There is no winter, so you don't have to worry about it so much. Well, you know, with, like that kind of that's it. If the mango is always fruiting, then you don't have to plan about <laughs> exactly. how you're going to survive the winter. Exactly. And the winter is is this future concept that is um, not front of mind when you live in the tropics. So, right. so this idea of planning for the future, of um, doing things according to a schedule and a deadline, of organizing yourself around that, as opposed to Maybe I organize myself around the people who are in front of me. Um, maybe I just organize myself around what needs to be done. And if that means that we have to start and stop at a certain time, we just we don't bother with that. We just continue. So how we organize ourselves around this idea of time, I think, is really critical. And it's going to affect how we do business, how we negotiate. And I think it also affects how men and women relate with each other if, as we've established, in a patriarchal world, uh, women have to fight for the authority to make decisions, then how we organize ourselves around time is going to be a decision that may be gender specific. It may be a decision that men make as opposed to women make, certainly more often than not in a patriarchal society. Uh, and then any other big variables that you want to highlight? Um, I, I think the idea of... Um, Rules and processes as opposed to doing things according to situations. Um, There are cultures that focus on creating a rule, process, a system as the benchmark or the justification for doing whatever they do, making whatever decision needs to be made. Um, And then there are these cultures that say, well, we understand the value of rules and processes and systems. But the reason I do anything 
is based on the immediate situation that's in front of me. Well, and this is the difference between legal systems around the world, uh, probably less so now today, but certainly the U.S. legal system is um, each case in controversy is dealt with and that creates the law versus more European systems, for instance, that create the rules and you just apply the rules. So they're they're exactly that that point of how things are different, you know, based on culture. Right. And it's going to affect not only the legal system, it's going to affect how people perceive business, how projects get managed or not. Uh, do we follow the rules or do we deal with the immediate challenge of the situation? Is it contextual? And I think it also affects gender roles, right? How men and women relate with each other. Um, which takes us, I think, to maybe one more category that I think is a really big one, which is how do we communicate? And again, all of the influences that create our culture creates these, this dichotomy where we see certain cultures in the world communicating in very explicit, direct ways where the assumption is that everyone understands what I'm trying to say because we all use the same language, the same meaning, and we ascribe the same meaning to the words and the style that we communicate. So everything is, everything's very explicit and clear. And, and then there are these cultures that are, no, we're not, we're not going to be explicit about things. In fact, if we need to be more concerned about building and maintaining harmonious relationships, we're going to be very careful about what we say. And the idea is that if you share the same understanding of the world as I do, then I don't need to say very clearly or explicitly everything that you kind of understand what I mean without me actually having to say it. And here too, this is going to affect how we work with each other, how we communicate, how we negotiate. And I think it also affects the roles of gender. I mean, women and men are going to be ascribed these very different roles in patriarchal systems. So that is great. Um, let me see. I, individualism, uncertainty, time, rules and processes, communication. And I. so let's, uh, I wanted to back up and just, I was thinking how to do this. I, I thought maybe I'd just talk about myself a little bit because I certainly know the culture that I, the national, and we're talking again, national cultural dimensions, although you know, that's complicated, too, because there's subcultures in every country, particularly in the United States. But, and, and national borders are often artificially created. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I come from a very individualistic culture, uh, the United States. And of course, that culture, um, I think about like how that varies by gender. And the question is, absolutely. I mean, I am an individualist. I wouldn't be working for myself if I didn't. I wouldn't be living in the woods if I wasn't an individualist, you know? Um, some people think I'm like, I can't believe how you live, Susan. You know, I go off hiking by myself. Um, but I think about um, how I am in relation to the men of my cultural tribe. And I'm definitely more collectivist. I'm more focused on the group. I am less, uh, you know, I think about even the U.S. military, the army of one, you know, how much they highlight the individualism. It's kind of a masculine thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, a bro kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, be the rugged, be the rugged individualist. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think women really ascribe to that in my culture. We don't ascribe to being the rugged individualist, um, even though, 
uh, we, we're doing gutsier things than uh, like I see a lot. For instance, just looking looking at uh, the wilderness and people launching into the wilderness. My um, my son, uh, I have a son and a daughter. And my son, you know, this this has something to do with with patriarchy, because my son has been a wilderness guide all over the West. And he was able to do that partially because he's a male and he's white. He's a white male strong dude and uh i think that had he been of color like i a, a friend of mine whose son is of co- you know she's of color she's black she's african-american we often talk about like there's no way that he could have gone off and been the rugged individualist mm-hmm. in the woods you know mm-hmm. <laughs> because he probably get killed i mean i don't know he he could really get hurt so, um, you know, I'm not going to worry too much about being scientific here. I'm going to just talk about being experiential. But certainly I am. I relate to being an individualist, but I am way less individualistic than I think the dominant cultural norm of my Anglo-Saxon tribe because of my gender. Absolutely. And how less individualistic might the entire culture be if women were more empowered? Yes, I think that's right, because I think women... Uh, you know, I and and maybe this gets into um, well, whatever. I in you know, I think sisterhood is a big word now these days among a lot of women. You know, when I'm talking to a young woman in South Sudan, when I'm talking to, I interviewed a woman in Pakistan, a young woman in Pakistan. I think the reality for women across the planet, looking at patriarchal structures, is we are very aware that sisterhood is our batna. Batna is a negotiation idea, you know, that you that um, you can't walk away. You know, it's your it's your walk away position. And for women, if we don't have if we don't have a sisterhood, if we don't have women that have our backs, it's kind of like it's it's sort of our union, you know, mm. and there's a lot there's a lot of women that are breaking ranks and going and finding their rich husbands to take care of them. And I mean, I'm whatever I call them scabs. Um, <laughs> But but, you know, it's more of a collectivist idea that and and I and I don't want to put any more pressure on women than we already have on us. But uh, we need to support each other out there. And it hasn't always been the case that we've had because we have been sort of the second class citizens that have been scrambling for to, uh, you know, to rise. And um, and so, the you know, we don't also need to have to worry about other all other women but we we kind of do we kind of do have to worry about that idea of sisterhood because i think we're all going to rise together or we're not going to rise exactly and and you were talking about your experience and and of course as an ally i'll talk about my experience and that is you just said it and the virus is calling this out i think for everyone to see that we're all going to rise or fall unless we do everything together here. And I think that women have been kept disempowered by the patriarchal structures because they present this threat to those with the individualist authority. And, And that was fundamentally male and then white male, and then white European of a certain gender, uh, not gender, a certain generation, mm-hmm. and a certain generational connection. And that's much too threatening to the entire structure. But this whole structure's got to change if we're going to move forward here, because we can only move forward together. 
And now from your perspective, you know, there may be some women who get rewarded because of their individualism. And I think the structure is designed to reward a certain number of people to keep things looking like we're moving in the right direction. But the truth is, until the whole sisterhood is empowered, none of us, and I mean not only the women, but also the other 50% or 48% that's male, none of us are going to be able to survive and move forward in the world because we need to be doing this together. And so we got to spread this empowerment around because there's stuff that the individualists have to learn from the collectivists if we're all going to survive. Yeah, it's a really, really nicely said. Um, yeah, it's something that really excites me about uh, empowering women through collaborative negotiation skills is that I think that women uh, and men, but certainly women really, because I think we have in our bones an idea about collaboration, which is close to collect. It's not the same as what you're talking about with collectivists, but it's related. And I think we we have the ability to be uh, the collaborative leadership force that I think the planet really needs right now, as we're seeing from this pandemic. I mean, um, and the other thing I wanted to say, based on what you said, is that the other reason I think that women's empowerment is uh, sometimes uh, threatening to patriarchal structures is that patriarchy is, you know, is closely linked to advanced capitalism. And I think women are a lot, we, we've provided a lot of free labor whether it be by being the good corporate wife, like I was, I was raised to be and didn't become, um, and it's similar. It's similar to people of color too. And you're right that some people get through or allowed through the structure, but only a certain number because really both women and uh, people of color or, or people that are not the dominant cultural norm they do provide a lot of free services or cheaper services. Um, you know, no matter what level of society you're talking about, it's it's often we we are cheaper. <laughs> yeah, and that's called cheaper labor. That's and that's part of a disempowerment, right? That's yeah. part of the way the system's designed, and so that has to be abolished. That has to be changed. And and I think that you know you can take a, a, any culture and you can slice and dice it. Like we're looking at cultures that are either more individualist or more collectivist, and you can say, okay, in this collectivist culture, um, where are the women and where are the men? And and in a patriarchal system the men are going to represent this norm more than the women because the women right. are disempowered. Right. So whatever predisposition the women might have is diminished because the patriarchal system doesn't want to call on it. Mm -hmm. it, it then you can look at the women in that system or, or the men in that system where you can slice and dice it and say, does this change if we only look at people under 30? Or is it different if we look at people over 60? Um, and I think you're going to see differences. Yes, you mm -hmm. will, most definitely. Too. Sure. Yeah. I think millennials are changing things, but maybe not always as fast as they think, but they're, de they're definitely changing things. <laughs> I'm sure it's not as fast as they think. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So another one, hi hierarchy. Right? No, you were talking about uncertainty. And that, that actually is connected to what I was just saying about risk. Like I remember having a, a son and a daughter, uh, I think, and maybe I'm being just stereotyping based on not enough data at all. But I did watch how, like, for instance, my son in his body was way more comfortable with taking risks um, physically, whereas my daughter was more conservative. Now, that 
that sounds like a stereotype. I mean, like it may be too much of a generalization to me, but but I think women are uh, in our bodies as our embodied experience. We are more cautious. We've been taught to be more cautious. We've been told often in terms of how we're supposed to be in our body. Certainly women around the planet, you know, many women have to cover. They're not allowed to, you know, which has good and bad parts to it. But just as an embodied experience, we can be more closed in. I just interviewed two dancers for the podcast, and one of them was talking about how there's physiological responses that women haven't learned. Uh, We've learned how to close ourselves in and protect ourselves, but we haven't necessarily learned how to put our arms out to protect ourselves or to kick if we have to do that. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of those things um, I think about myself, my brother was just so, he beat me up so much as a little kid, but I would never have kicked him ever. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about that. I think, wow, life would have been different if I'd felt empowered to kick him. (laughs) Well, I don't think you'd have to have advertisements on the New York City subway explaining to men how they have to sit differently because you got to not have to take up all that free space, you know? And yeah, I mean, the physiology of the different genders, I think, is partly culturally determined and also, it may have some connection to our biology. I, I don't know the degree there. I haven't seen the studies. I would suspect it's more culturally defined than otherwise. But anyway, I do think in terms of risk, you know, the other thing about uh, uncertainty is I think uh, women are, um, because we've been dependent on men, I mean, I think there's a, a scourge around the planet for women of being codependent, which means that we get our livelihood from being dependent on men, which I mm-hmm. hope that we are changing and, and getting more empowered ourselves. Um, but if you're dependent on a source outside of yourself, and I, I know this is a cultural variable that you mentioned, you're going to be more conservative than if you are dependent, if you're inner focused, if you're focused on yourself. Um, and yeah, I guess that was time in, in your variables that you sent me that was, you had internal control and external control Mm-hmm. And that made me think about this issue of codependency because, and how it plays out around the world. Because I think women all over the planet are codependent. Men it's are really too. interesting. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, if you feel empowered that you can control what's going on around you, that's, that's that sense of internal control. Um, right. But if you feel like, no, 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 I can't control things, the things are determined by others, whether it's Allah, whether it's God, whether it's the volcano. Uh, or whether it's the guy that I'm living with, then, <laughs> then often the last. <laughs> okay, that's what. So if you feel like all of the, all of what's going on around you is determined by others, by these other factors, and not you, yeah, and, and you know that's going to certainly affect how you fit into that culture. Now, if you happen to be in a culture where it is more external as opposed to internal. Um, then you're going to be more like the norm. But most patriarchal cultures are the other way around. Wait, uh, uh, so what's a culture that's more focused on the external? In cultures where there is less of a sense of being empowered by most of the people for whatever the reason might be. It might be that um, the political system is such where nobody has any authority and everyone's pretty much disempowered unless you are of uh, the cult of the current leadership. 
Um, we see a lot of this in Africa, for example. Yeah. And then I think, again, in terms of gender, it's just, again, going to be that women are less so. less Even, even less. Even less. Because certainly... Certainly something that I think women share as a struggle all over the planet is connecting to our voices, connecting to our ability to speak, um, to take a stand for what it is that we want and believe. And and that is changing, but it's certainly something that happens all over the place. I wanted to go to communication, the, the high context and low context, because I remember early on in my negotiation days reading some literature about how to negotiate with the Japanese. It was a business book for white Anglo-Saxon, probably men. Mm -hmm. And it said, if you want to learn how to negotiate with the Japanese, just learn how to negotiate with your wives. And I think what they were referring to, if I recall, was that, you know, a high context culture is paying much more attention to not the explicit words that are being said, but who is saying it, how it's being said, the intonation, I mean, certainly like in China, I know intonation has everything to do with communication. Mm -hmm. But going back to the, you know, learn how to negotiate with your wives, if you want to negotiate with the Japanese, that women are more high context, I think, because we are less empowered. So we are paying a lot of attention to, oh, what did, what's that face he just made? Uh, do I need to, uh, you know, uh, cool him down? How do I need to please him? How do I need to accommodate? Uh, you know, if we are codependent and paying attention to the male on whom we are dependent, uh, we are going to be paying attention to all the nonverbal cues and the and taking care to make sure that uh, that we're noticing. That's right, especially if you can be victimized if you're not careful. Well, and that too, very much so. Yeah, very much so. So, how does that affect the negotiation? You know, I think, um, I mean, I think in terms of negotiation, uh, women, of course, we are more accommodating. And I, I think that goes not, and I haven't seen studies around this, but I've watched a lot of people in negotiation. And I think a lot of women will accommodate in ways that they, uh, well, so will many Asians. You know, if I look, when I think about the world or go around the world and I think the frustrations that different groups have around negotiation, I think I come back to my aggression, assertion, avoidance. You know, I think many, many people in the East will have expressed frustration to me over the years that they actually want to be more assertive. Mm -hmm. And then Many people in the West, particularly men, they get called out when they do these negotiation simulations and they realize how their aggression wasn't so great. And uh, I mean, it's it's great to be strongly assertive and competitive, but then it, it can backfire. And uh, so in a lot of these simulations, people will call people like that out, you know, and they'll see how their attacking behavior right. is not going over very well. Right, right. So I think women as a group, when I think about how many people I've seen, you know, and the research supports this, that women uh, are often very good at negotiating on behalf of somebody else. But when it comes to negotiating on behalf of themselves, not so hot. Yeah. They don't claim value. They're much more likely to accommodate. Mm. And I think that comes from patriarchy, you know, mm -hmm. from from the learning that we've had around patriarchy. Right. I, did. I totally agree with you. That's the position that they've been put in. So another one that's interesting to me is this uh, subjectivist versus objectivist one that you mentioned. Can you remind me what, how would you describe that? 
Yeah, I, I think we're looking at the, the cultures that emphasize rules and processes and systems that are supposed to be universal for everybody, as opposed to cultures that say, no, what we do and how we do it and why we do it is all dependent on the individuals and the people that we're involved with in the moment. And that rules and processes and systems are secondary. So whatever's going on in the situation is what drives our decision. What came to my mind when I thought that is, is uh, Carol Gilligan's In a Different Voice uh, many moons ago, that amazing book about um, morality and, and gender. And uh, she, in that book, she was talking about little boys and little girls in conflict and how little boy, this is a study that she was citing. And this was, again, U.S. kids on right. the playground. That if a fight broke out on the playground, what little boys would do is that they would talk about what the rules of the game were mm -hmm. and they would apply them to resolve the conflict. But little girls uh, would abandon the game to preserve the relationship. Exactly. And, and easy to do when you're the rule maker. So patriarchy guarantees that the, the little boy makes the rules. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe if the little girls had actually come up with the rules, they wouldn't. They they they'd come back to applying them to make sure that they were. Uh... Well, I think to your point, Susan, we're all capable of behaving in any of these ways, right? Mm -hmm. It's just that we've been trained to wait one way more important than the other. And if you're the one who gets the advantage from following the rules, you're going to wait the rules. Yeah, and I think I think that's what's. Um... What's on the minds of many women these days is how much we see how the rules really haven't worked for us in many regards. Has worked for us in some ways, but in a, and again, I'm not saying that it doesn't. It's it's not so great for men either. Uh, patriarchy, in my opinion, uh, it's not so great. When I say that, you know, make that point about how much I think, I actually think that so much of this comes back to domination, I'll use Rianne Eisler's word of domination versus partnership worldview. That's right. And if you have a dominator worldview, you are using force to extract resources around the world. And you are then um, molding boys and girls, but boys mostly, so they can be your, your soldiers. Yeah, and exactly. We all suffer from the system. I yeah. don't now I say that with full awareness of the fact that I think women certain I know that women certainly um suffer far more than men do because the men are privileged to be able to be the rule makers in a patriarchal system. But at the end of the day, we're all faced with stuff right now that goes far beyond well, the reason we're talking about this is because we know that dominance and power-based decision making uh, ultimately is not going to solve the problems that we're faced with right now. Yeah, we've just become way too global and interdependent. I think if this pandemic has shown one thing, it's the interdependence of all of us. And I do want to say, if you asked me if I would rather be a boy or a girl, I would choose girl. Because uh, because I think, and this might be a, a whatever, it's just my experience, I think girls have been have not had to be so shut off, uh, walled off. I think boys... I remember doing this um, program with soldiers when I was in Cyprus. They were all men. And we were doing this listening exercise. And I was really nervous about doing this. I was like, oh, gosh, they're going to think this is way too touchy-feely. 
And I uh, gave them this exercise to talk about uh, some of the softer feelings about sadness or fear, things like that. Well, they loved it. They loved being given permission to actually be able to talk about their full range of feelings because, of course, men and women, like like cultures, men and women, we are more the same, I think, than we are different uh, in our biology and everything else. I'm not saying we aren't different. We are. But but I think sometimes that patri- patriarchy has um, benefited from really accentuating the differences between men and women. And sometimes I think the gender fluidity that's happening among millennials is kind of a peace movement. It's kind of like, a, uh, you know, it's, it's no, we're not going to be the uber male or the uber female. We're right. going to allow ourselves to be whole humans. Absolutely. Um, this is, an, this is a, an adventure and emancipation for both genders. Yeah. So I think maybe we've covered what, you know, maybe enough for now of what we wanted to talk about. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. It feels right to me. I mean, I think probably we could get into it. would be interesting to know if there was any studies about this, but I actually haven't seen. I don't know. I haven't seen any. Myself. I know. Right. I mean, we ra- we raised a lot of really interesting ideas, some of mm-hmm. which there I know there are studies of, but others not. I don't I haven't seen it. Yeah. So anyway, well, I um, really appreciate your time and I hope you found this fun because I found it fun to think about. And it's always fun to reconnect with you. And uh, as I've said, I feel like getting gender right. And what I mean by that is really allowing humans to be fully themselves, to be fully themselves, because honestly, uh, and I just interviewed somebody uh, who was talking about one of the things that most profoundly affected her growing up in Spanish Harlem was that her brother was a very, very soft, gentle soul. Mm. And she lived in a pretty tough world and she had no problem being tough. But he got really, really beat up as a result of being a guy that wasn't a bro, you know, that wasn't. And um, I'm just aware that for all of us humans, and of course my focus is is more on women right now because I'm really focusing on wanting to build women's negotiation capacity. I do think it's time for women to really get over any codependence we might have and really step into our leadership. And I know many men are supporting us in that and doing their own work around this. Um, But ultimately, this is about allowing humans to be fully human and have the whole range of whatever is real for them, whatever cultural dimension is real for them, whatever feeling is real for them, whatever uh, psychological you know, state is real for them to allow us the freedom to be who we really are. Right, and not to be disempowered by a system because of that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Dean. I really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe, keep washing your hands. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and hopefully somehow we're gonna get to the other side of this whole crazy covid thing check in with each other in a, in a week or so and just see how we're doing that'd be nice okay. thank you Beautiful. Susan. this was great thank you so i hope wherever you are listening to this podcast cooking dinner driving in your car that you've enjoyed our conversation As I mentioned, I'm taking the summer to work on my upcoming book, Women, Negotiation, and Power, Dismantling Patriarchy, One Negotiation at a Time. So wish me luck. I'm also working on a compilation of conversations with Rabia Roberts, 
and talks by her on the first humans and the history or herstory of women. I'm really excited by that. I love Rabia's voice. So stay tuned. And until next time, stay strong, stay safe, stay mighty, and let's keep taking this all higher. <laughs>